Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, November 8th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello. Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. And Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Hi there. And a reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, we're now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday morning. So, ladies, quite a bit has happened since we last met. What are you referring to, Julie? <laughs> <laughs> we, will, we will get to our post-election analysis in a minute. But first, some late-breaking news from the Trump administration. Late Wednesday, uh, officials issued final rules aimed at exempting many employers with a, quote, religious or moral objection from being required to offer birth control in their health insurance plan. These are less sweeping than similar rules that were blocked by the courts last year. What What's the idea? What would these rules do? This is a partial rollback of a rule that the Obama administration put out as part of Obamacare that basically said all health plans, including employer health plans, need to provide contraception, all the forms of contraception that are approved by the FDA, to all women without any cost sharing. And so that includes a range of options, including pills, patches, rings, uh, but also long-acting reversible forms of contraception like IUDs and implants, and also uh, emergency contraception uh, known as the morning-after pill by some people. And which uh, is different from the abortion pill. It is different from the abortion pill. It's a kind of high dose of the kinds of hormones that are in some of these other methods. Uh, but there are certain religious organizations that either have objections to contraception of any form or have objections to certain kinds uh, for reasons that don't seem to have a very strong scientific basis, but they have a kind of some religious problem with the form of contraception. I mean, specifically, a lot of a lot of people believe now, apparently incorrectly, that emergency contraception can stop the fertile the implantation of a fertilized egg, um, which seems not to be the case. But they believe that, and that's actually how the rule is written. It says if you believe that these are abortifacients, which they believe, um, and they don't want to offer them, then they don't have to. So yeah. So what this rule does is it kind of. The Obama administration provided some exceptions for religious organizations who didn't want to offer this kind of contraception as part of their insurance plans. But there, you know, it was sort of narrow. And then for certain religiously affiliated organizations, they didn't have to directly provide it. But the insurance company had to do some kind of uh, wraparound that did provide these services to women. And what the Trump administration has tried to do, both with its earlier rule and now with this newer one, is kind of widen out the exceptions, make it possible for more employers uh, of different sizes and also with different kinds of objections, not just religious objections, but moral objections to contraception, to not have to cover these benefits. And Julie, you may be more in the weeds on the particular ways in which they changed the policy in this rule, but I think part of what they were trying to do is the court, they put out the first rule as what's called an interim final rule. So they didn't put out a proposal and then take comment and do a whole process of changing things, which is how most regulations work. They put out this rule and they said it's effective immediately. And what the court said is there wasn't really any need to rush in that way. Why can't we go through the normal process, make sure that everything is being done by the book? Uh, and so what I think part of what they're trying to do with this new rule is they're addressing comments that have come in since then. They're addressing to some degree the objections of the court. And I think they're hoping that 
uh, this can be another bite of the apple. There was a second rule, actually, that, that came out on Wednesday that said that was something that had not been addressed before. During the big fight over abortion when the Affordable Care Act was passed, there was concern that if uh, health plans offered abortion coverage and people got subsidies, that that would be the federal government subsidizing abortion, and therefore there should be a separate physical bill for the abortion coverage part of your insurance policy, which the insurers pointed out would be less than a dollar a month. Um, but now they have come out and said that, yes, there must be a separate physical bill. Um, this, these are people who are getting uh, who are buying insurance on the health exchanges, um, and that there is the the worry I think from uh, uh, abortion rights advocates is that insurance companies will just stop offering abortion coverage yeah, because it's, it's just way too it's much. It's a pain trouble. in the neck to bill somebody for ninety eight cents a month, or whatever. I mean, I don't know what the number is, but it's it's an ex it's a separate bill. The um, it, it's it's it's. it's a fair amount of bureauc- effort, bureaucratic effort that they're not going to want to do. So it's also this a is, lot of administrative cost. Right, right. And, and so they're probably the, the interpretation of this rule is that it's a it's a back it's they're not outlawing plans from covering abortion, but they're creating an incentive for a big incentive for plans not to cover abortion in the exchanges. Some states already don't allow it. I forgot the um, exact number. Oh, it's thirty some. Yeah. I mean, there's a already of, yeah, yeah a lot of the states just and passed laws that just banned abortion coverage on the exchanges. Right, they did have that option in many states too. So, but it is there's also it some is states another, that require it. So those those are the ones where you're going right. to see these one dollar you right. know extra premium. And I think it was I don't know New if York this is, is true another for I think this New York year, and California. There was yeah. for a while. While Connecticut, there was not an option to buy an insurance policy that didn't have abortion coverage. It wasn't required, just that everybody in the state was offering it. Right. And sometimes when we rattle off names of states before someone emails, we we, we may get the lists incomplete or wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's California New York. <laughs> and if yeah. I'm not, I'll just apologize right now. <laughs> <laughs> so this just speaks to the power of the executive branch right now. As we see Congress continuing to have some gridlock over major issues, the administrative powers that the White House has are enormous, and we have seen the Department of Health and Human Services come back time and again to put its stamp on the health exchanges, on abortion, on a wide range of issues, and I think that's just going to continue and, in fact, accelerate. Yeah, you anticipated my question. Do we think the timing of this was, was trying to make a statement? Right after the election, it's it certainly speaks to what many of the supporters of the administration were hoping for. All right. Well, let us dive into our, our post-election analysis uh, with a look at Congress. There are still a couple of races outstanding as of this discussion, but we do know that the Democrats will control the House and Republicans will grow their majority by at least a couple of seats in the Senate. Um, what does this mean for the health care agenda? I think we should think of this as a sort of drag on change to the healthcare system in Congress that uh, if the Republicans had con- continued to control both the House and the Senate, then maybe we would be talking about another run at Obamacare repeal. Maybe we would be talking about block grants and Medicaid. Maybe we would even be talking about certain forms of Medicare or, you know, quote unquote, entitlement reform. None of those things were assured. We talked about it last week. I think there would have been challenges. But I think now we can safely say those things are not going to happen in the next two years. The House uh, Democratic leadership is not interested in those policies anymore. And so while there may be some more marginal things in healthcare that could happen, uh, and we could talk about those, I think the kind of big structural changes to Obamacare and the big healthcare programs, we're just not going to see those changes. The Democrats ran on, we're essentially going to protect the status quo. We're going to keep pre-existing conditions. We're going to keep Medicaid. We're going to keep Medicare. And they can basically 
keep those promises without passing any legislation in health care at all. Yes, my, my little mini rant from yesterday was I saw some uh, from uh, right after the, the elections, I saw some pundits saying that, you know, well, Democrats, you know, ran on pre-existing conditions and now they have to do something. And it's like, they don't have to do anything. <laughs> well, they they do, just they, have to yeah. not repeal it. But they, we all, probably, the court, the court. I mean, we yeah, all, all of us know this, the, and, and many of our listeners do. There is a court case pending in Texas. A decision could come any minute, even while we're on the air. And, um, you know, they could throw out pre-existing conditions. I think most of us anticipate that it would be stayed, that it wouldn't take effect immediately because this is going to go through the appeals courts and quite probably all the way to the Supreme Court, and that'll take a year or two. But, you know, but Congress will have limited options. If if the court says, you know, sayonara, pre-existing conditions. Because divide, they're unconstitutional. Right, yeah. A divided Congress yeah. is not going to have a lot of tools to fix that or address that um, unless it unless they decide that the public demand for a fix is, is big enough that they have to have a bipartisan response. We're, we're really far away from that. Um, and in addition, anything they do, uh, you know, if they if the Democrats want to take on some of these policy changes that, that we were just talking about, things that, they, that HHS has done to affect the exchanges and affect the insurance markets and what you can and cannot buy. Um, Again, the Democrats in the House will have unlimited opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> and um, hold hearings. And which hold is hearings not and, and, and possibly subpoena and then make, you know, officials come and spend hours explaining. That's Congress on both sides. They're good at that. And that's, you know, that's their favorite sport. Um, but they won't be able to bring about a great deal of change unless there's a bipartisan desire to do so. What about the one apparently bipartisan thing, which is drug prices? Yes. Also surprise bills. And surprise, that's right, surprise medical bills. That's true. So let me address the drug prices first. I think that what we'll see is that the Democrats, the House Democrats, have this three-pronged proposal that they want to put forward. And whether you want to call it a messaging bill or a bill that perhaps they hope might go somewhere in the Senate, although that's doubtful, they probably will push through at least debate on on those three bills. Um, One of them would allow... Medicare to negotiate drug prices. That's something that Congress, that the House controlled Congress passed in 2007. They, through the House. They've been trying to do that through the House. And the Congressional Budget Office said wouldn't lower drug prices very much, but it's really popular. It doesn't really lower drug prices unless you're willing to be firm and keep these drugs off you know, deny coverage and not cover these these particular products. So I, I think that we will see those three proposals go through. Um, I think they mostly will die in the Senate. Um, and I think that the one thing that's interesting and would be w- interesting to watch is whether there's any interest at all on the Finance Committee on moving forward on some of these smaller bills. Um, If Chuck Grassley of Iowa becomes the Finance Committee chairman, if he gives up the gavel on the Judiciary Committee, then he has been a supporter of a bill that would um, move forward in a very small way by making brand name drug companies provide samples to generic drug companies so that they can copy the drugs. And so that's something that got a markup. That's something that potentially could move forward. There there are small piecemeal steps that can be taken altogether, taken as a whole. It's not going to make a huge difference, though. 
And surprise bills that they, they went out of out of network bills that, that yeah, people that get. Yeah, that seems like something that maybe would have moved regardless of the outcome in Congress. I think there is in the Senate at least real bipartisan interest. There's a draft legislation with a lot of senators on both sides of the aisle uh, signed on. And my understanding, talking to people that work in this area, is that they're bringing them in. They are getting advice. They're refining the proposal. There are a couple of other bills. There are some bills in the House, and there's also a bill in the Senate brought by the two Democratic senators from New Hampshire. But I think this sort of bipartisan bill, it seems like it's a real process and there's a real desire to get something done on that. And so my suspicion is that there's enough uh, there's enough momentum that we'll see something. So not to- right. And the other thing on, on drug prices, I mean, President Trump wants to do something about drug prices. So you have this, you know, bizarre alliance of the president and the House Democrats, maybe. I mean, their political calculations will will you know, factor into this. But you could end up with Trump and the House Dems finding something to agree on on drug prices and then, you know, trying to ram it through the Republican Senate. So that could be uh, interesting. And, and the other thing I think we have to point out is, you know, yes, this is a health podcast and we're all like, you know, you know, health obsessed. But there are other things going on in the world. <laughs> there most certainly uh, are. <laughs> you know, Washington could be consumed really, really quickly with whatever happens next with the Justice Department and the Mueller investigation and who's going to say what and fire whom. And I mean, it could be a real all-consuming mess and it could last for a long time. And we have none of us here know this is not our view. Not, no one knows. Nobody knows what's going to happen. But it could be quite a drama and it could be quite, you know, people talk about constitutional crisis. And I'm not sure if surprise bills would like get any oxygen in that kind of scenario. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> all right. Well, we will, we will have to stay tuned for all of that. Um, but let, let me just okay. note that even in the perfect world, even if we weren't in the middle of all these constitutional crises, and even if we didn't have must-pass legislation in other areas like appropriations and funding the government, we're still looking at a Congress that is not really all that well-educated on these issues, and we have a lot of newcomers coming. They they don't know a lot about these issues. So, I mean, if you look even just at the House Ways and Means Committee, something like 40% of the Republicans on that panel are not coming back next year. And we also see, you know, on energy and commerce, 20%. I think there's going to be – the turnover is also going to be, a, a, as Margot says, a bit of a drag. Yeah, on progress. there's, there's, there's definitely one, yeah. a learning curve. There's also one other, I, I would say, you know, very long shot, but one other possibility is I can see remotely if I squint, um, you know, the chance that they would do something about exchange stabilization. You know, a lot of states have tried to uh, get waivers to do things to, to stabilize their exchange markets, to, to make premiums more stable. I mean, there was the bill that we used to call the Murray-Alexander bill or the Alexander-Murray bill that, you know, exploded into many pieces. Well, that was a CSR bill. There was, a, there was also a reinsurance right. bill. Right. They were, but they, they were lumped together. And, and could, you, could you begin to see – I mean, I'm not saying – I'm saying that this is something we will watch out for and it is not – when you know, Rebecca and I were talking before we came on, we sort of came up with a new scale of what's possible and it's like not – it's like more likely than landing on Mars, but not really possible. <laughs> I mean, but I could see some kind of conversation happening there. Some, some, you know, the red states wanted have seen other red states have success, and we've had a lot of, and we have a lot of new governors, which right? Is, which right. We will. Some of me, right? So, so uh, it, 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 you know, is that something that we should watch out for? Yes. Is it something that we should expect? No. But I also think the Trump administration has made legislation on that a little bit less necessary because right. it it put out this guidance that made these kinds of state waivers where states can do weird stabilization things or not weird but creative, inventive, uh, but also just basic reinsurance. I mean, yeah, take, take but the basic reinsurance people. they could yeah. always do. But now I think you know a lot of what that bipartisan 
Verizon bill, that sort of negotiation was about was let's put some money in for stabilization and for advertising and other kinds of things that the Trump administration uh, has not been willing to do. And in exchange, we'll do some state flexibility. The state flexibility has sort of been already given. But with that state flexibility, I think, becomes a little bit more uh, ability for states to try things, including reinsurance, which has gotten approved in a bunch right. of states already. And, and has end. brought down premium. I mean, not just gotten approved, right. but I mean, we're seeing in the states that are doing this reinsurance where, you know, the, the most expensive people get to get get paid for through other mechanisms. Um, it's brought premiums right. way down. The, 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 overall, the exchanges are more stable. Uh, last year, there were a lot more questions because of the cost sharing subsidy. Uh, I, I and also, think... Alexander was from Tennessee, uh, the chairman of the health, the, the chairman of the Senate Health Committee and Lamar Alexander. And um, his state was the one we all pointed to as the basket check case. That was the the death spiral state. It was a mess. And Tennessee has really stabilized quite astonishingly. So he also doesn't have that, that local driver to try to do something federally to fix. I'm not but, saying it's likely. I just think that we shouldn't rule out some kind of discussions there because it also becomes a hook to get other things that you want through. You need a legislative vehicle. To all right. We, and I also think just coming back to Rebecca's point about how much power the executive has, I think <laughs> stabilization really could come back to the table if there are new rules about what we call silver loading. So when the cost sharing reductions went away, a lot of states kind of did this complicated workaround and the Trump administration so far has allowed that. If they stopped allowing that, then uh, that really could be very disruptive. We could start to see the Tennessee market looking messy again. And then I think there might be more appetite for coming to the table with like CSR plus stabilization plus something else. Let's talk about Medicaid. There were ballot measures about Medicaid expansion in four red states. um, And it passed in three, right? (laughs) One is peculiar because Montana already has Medicaid expansion. So Montana suggested doing a tobacco tax to pay for ongoing Medicaid expansion. That one for looks, its share right, of the Medicaid. Right. We should for remind the, people the that federal government pays most of the share. The states have to do no more than ten percent. Um, so, and the tobacco industry, as we've all seen many times over the years, is very good at killing things like that. So that was a funding. The funding uh, bill in Montana failed, and that, right. but that doesn't mean they're stopping Medicaid expansion. It means they will have a fight over how to pay for it and what Republicans are going to ask for in exchange for putting forth some money, and it might be work requirements. We're at the very beginning of this argument. We don't know what's going to happen. It is not a defeat of Medicaid. It is a problem about funding and what it will look for, look like. So that's Montana. And the and other Montana, states? Montana oh, go goes through June of 2019, yeah. and it's very hard to take benefits away from people. We saw that in other states like And Kentucky. there's a Democratic And there's governor. a Democratic governor. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, in Utah, Nebraska, and Idaho, those move forward. Um, in Idaho, it was like 60 percent of the vote. Which was interesting. Um, so these were just these were ballot questions to say. Do you think we should expand Medicaid in states that have not have refused basically to do it? It's for the, the voters last saying these are Republican states. So there's Republican voters telling the Republican officials in the state, you know, we want you to do this, and you have not, and then now it's time. And we've had these discussions in Utah for a while. There's been movement towards this in the past, but now we see it going forward. We also see in Kansas that, that there's a Democratic governor there. and A brand new Democratic a, governor. Yes, yeah, that was one of the shockers. And that, was, that was something that was very important because the Kansas legislature has moved forward on Medicaid expansion and the then governor, Sam Brownback, vetoed it. So you can expect that to move forward. In Maine, we also have a Democratic governor who's finally going to open the door to Medicaid expansion after the voters last year approved that, and Governor Paul LePage has just said no, no, I don't think so, and resisted all the and way. And the Republican who was running, I mean, LePage is retiring, but the Republican who was running was sort of with LePage, was with them. Yeah, of. I don't think it was, so. He was an over my dead body candidate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
And in Wisconsin, um, we also see a Democrat there, and that may move forward if he, if the newly elected Democratic governor there moves forward. He says he will move quickly to try to expand Medicaid. He does have a Republican-controlled legislature to deal with. Although, so. as I think we talked about before, Wisconsin's an odd state because even though they unusual. don't, even though they didn't expand. The Tommy Thompson, when he was governor, before he was Secretary of Health and Human Services, had actually expanded um, uh, Medicaid in that state. So there's no there's no gap. Everybody is uh, is eligible for something, but fewer people are eligible for Medicaid in Wisconsin than in a, in a state that has expanded it all the way up to 133 percent of poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wisconsin also just had a waiver approved for a work requirement, and we talked about it last week. It's a little bit different than some of the other states that have had work requirements approved, but that's another thing. You know, the governor does have the authority to withdraw from that waiver. And um, I don't know if he's said anything. He's mentioned that he might. And that could certainly be a bargaining chip for a potential deal if there is one to be made. And then, of course, you have two, uh, a couple of states where it does not look like there will be a Repub- uh, Democratic governor. And these are big expansion states. Or non-expanded right. states. I mean, they big, would be big, big expansion expanded target states. states. Yeah. Um, Florida, I mean, unless I'm not sure if that's been certified yet. There's still some last minute questions about votes in Florida, the more the Senate race. But uh, I guess it may be there still may be some questions about the governor's uh, race is still not official. Right. So but it looks, it looks like it looks like the Republicans but, win. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he emphatically will not. Uh, I mean, Florida is a funny state because it has a republic. It has had a Republican governor, Rick Scott, who is likely to be a Republican senator now, who hates the ACA, um, has not expanded Medicaid, and yet they've had really high enrollment in the exchanges. But Medicaid, I mean, if that's a big state with a lot of eligible people, that is not changing. Georgia, at this point, you know, we may go into runoff territory. It's still a little murky, but at this point, the odds are that Georgia. Um, will not expand Medicaid because it looks like they will have a Republican governor, although by next week we could be saying something different. But that's how it looks right now. Um, so those are two states that are not changing. Texas did not have a change of governor this year. Um, you know, this may well be the last state to expand. Um, but yes, there are three or four states that are more likely because of their elections. Six state legislatures flipped. I'm not sure how they I line up. Seven. Seven. Uh, they, uh, they, I'm not exactly sure how they line up with the Medicaid map. But there's there is a more fertile ground for expansion with some great big, you know, red gaps. Uh, so Medicaid was the highest profile of the, the ballot measures, but that was not the only health-related ballot issue. We had soda taxes, or the lack thereof, in Washington State, home care in Maine, and abortion in Alabama, West Virginia, and Oregon. Who wants to talk about any of those? Well, and we also have the California dialysis. Oh, that's right. Which was the most expensive ballot initiative in the country. Ever. Yes. We should explain what it is. Yes. And it was $110 million that the opponents spent there, which was pretty interesting. Um, so basically, this would have capped the profits of dialysis centers, and it would have ensured that patients could not be turned away for their type of coverage. And so, you know, 72% of the California market is dominated by these two companies that run these dialysis centers, and they put a ton of money into it. And here we are. You see what the outcome is. Yes, it failed. <laughs> so so um, that was really interesting. Um, it was also interesting to see in Alabama and West Virginia that they have these ballot initiatives where if Roe versus Wade, which is the 1973 Supreme Court decision that upheld the national right to abortion, if that's ever overturned, then those would be constitutional amendments that would ensure that the state would not have to provide 
It's what they call a trigger law. Right. So that abortion. Although they were both constitutional amendments. <clears throat> but they don't go – they're they're sort of like lying in wait. So yes. if Roe goes, the constitutional amendment applies. It basically removes the right to the abortion in, in, under the state constitution, makes it easier to, to severely limit or perhaps totally ban abortion in Alabama and West Virginia. It, it, it there's, It's sort of a weird lying in wait thing. Yeah. Um, and Tennessee did right, this a couple Tennessee of years it, ago. Right. And oh. other states may do it in the future. Uh, but the because the Supreme Court when when Tennessee did it, it was sort of an abstraction. Um, Brett Kavanaugh is not an abstraction. He's a Supreme Court justice. It is a different court. We do not know what case will reach the court. We do not know how far they will go toward eroding rights. But these states, it's, it, there's a whole lot of things in the pipeline. Alabama and, and uh, West Virginia just became the latest to do some kind of um, life, after, life after row uh, legislation. There, there are a number of different forms that's taking in the states, but there's a lot of it. It is time for us to move on to our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Rebecca, why don't you go first this week? So I chose Atul Gawande's New Yorker piece about why doctors hate their computers, which we hear a lot about. So as the Department of Health and Human Services has tried to move doctors towards value-based care, part of that is trying to digitalize electronic records and eventually make it easier for people to, to for providers to move records from hospital to hospital and uh-huh. patients. Can, yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> this is, but this has been, I should point out, a very bipartisan effort. It started yes, with, with George Burwell. W. Bush. Well, that's true. And then it went, yeah, so it was Bush, then Obama, then... Right, and, and, and we've now, had yeah, money in the 2009 recovery bill, the, the stimulus bill for this. We've had all sorts of things throughout the years on this. But doctors are a little old-fashioned, and they, they want to spend time with their patients. And so this just provides lots of vignettes about the frustrations that doctors have. And at the end of the story, um, he talks about how he and a patient sat together and kind of went through the checklist that they have to do. So it's a big issue and uh, certainly one that doctors have a, very strong opinions about. Joanne. Uh, I saw a few uh, outlets that wrote about this. I think the Washington Post was the first, so I I grabbed theirs, how science fared in the midterm elections. Um, And they basically, there are more people with STEM backgrounds coming into Congress, science, uh, medicine, uh, engineering and technology. There's nurses, there's uh, engineers. I think there's a nuclear engineer, um, industrial engineers. um, uh, I'm not sure how many doctors won this year. I have to look that up. But basically, and that includes the, so it's a different sort of professional appreciation Appreciation of science and medicine, and the head of the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, uh, Eddie Bernice Johnson, who is a Democratic congressman from from Texas, will she will become the chair. She was a registered nurse. I actually think she was a psychiatric nurse, if I'm remembering correctly, replacing Lamar Smith of Texas, who wasn't such a big fan of science. <laughs> Margo. I wanted to talk about this article and stat that has stayed in my head ever since I read it. It's from Sharon Bagley called Lifespan Has Little to Do with Genes, Analysis of Large Ancestry Database Shows. And essentially what it has found is that your genes probably matter way less in terms of how long you're going to live than other factors. And we always knew that longevity is some mix of kind of nature and nurture. But uh, one of the findings of this study is that your lifespan is more highly correlated with the lifespan of your spouse than your sibling, (laughs) which is just wild. And they also found these really interesting relationships where the lifespan of your in-laws actually is somewhat predictive of how long you're going to live. I'm in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, you know, not not more than your siblings, but like pretty good. So, you know, I think this just really speaks to the, the fact that a lot of the things that have to do with our longevity are environmental. They have to do with um, our habits of life. You know, do we exercise? How do we eat? Uh, how much income we have, we know, is correlated with um, our longevity and what kind of medical care do we have access to? And that may matter a lot more than whether your like, great-grandmother lived to be 100. Well, I just think that this is also another example of how interesting research is being done because people are, you know, sending in these these DNA kits. I mean, it's this like this enormous trove of data now that that uh, if they both died before you got married, mark. do they not count? <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> All right. Well, mine is from my KHN and California Healthline colleague, Barbara Fader-Ostrov. It's called, and I love this headline, Hello, it's I, Robot, and have I got an insurance plan for you? And it's about the sudden surge of robocalls people are getting on their cell phones for health insurance now that we're in open enrollment um, for many things, not just the, the Affordable Care Act. It is a very serious story about a very big problem, but I particularly love the anecdote about one guy who managed to fool robocallers by answering every question with, I am a meat popsicle. It's still good read that. I am a meat popsicle. You really have to read the story. Um, so that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Rebecca Adams, D.C. At Joanne Cannon. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.